Chapter 4, Section 12, and Chapters 5, Sections 1 to 4 of The World Set Free. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The World Set Free by H. G. Wells. Chapter 4, Section 12. As things round themselves off and accomplish themselves, one begins for the first time to see them clearly. From the perspectives of a new age, one can look back upon the great and widening stream of literature with a complete understanding. Things link up that seem disconnected, and things that were once condemned as harsh and aimless are seen to be but factors in the statement of a gigantic problem. An enormous bulk of the sincere writing of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries falls together now into a, an unanticipated unanimity. One sees it as a huge tissue of variations upon one theme. The conflict of human egotism and personal passion and narrow imaginations on the one hand against the growing sense of wider necessities and a possible, more spacious life. That conflict is in evidence in so early a work as Voltaire's Candide. For example, in which the desire for justice as well as happiness beats against human contrariety and takes refuge at last in a forced and inconclusive contentment with little things. Candide was but one of the pioneers of a literature of uneasy complaint that was presently an innumerable multitude of books. The novels, more particularly of the 19th century, if one excludes the mere storytellers from our consideration, witness to this uneasy realization of changes that call for effort and of the lack of that effort. In a thousand aspects, now tragically, now comically, now with a funny affectation of divine detachment, a countless host of witnesses tell their story of lives fretting between dreams and limitations. Now one laughs, now one weeps, now one reads with a blank astonishment at this huge and almost unpremeditated record of how the growing human spirit, now warily, now eagerly, now furiously, and always, as it seems, unsuccessfully, tried to adapt itself to the maddening misfit of its patched and ancient garments. And always in these books, as one draws near to the heart of the matter, there comes a disconcerting evasion. It was the fantastic convention of the time that a writer should not touch upon religion. To do so was to rouse the jealous fury of the great multitude of professional religious teachers. It was permitted to state the discord, but it was forbidden to glance at any possible reconciliation. Religion was the privilege of the pulpit. It was not only from the novels that religion was omitted. 
it was ignored by the newspapers it was pedantically disregarded in the discussion of business questions it played a trivial and apologetic part in public affairs and this was done not out of contempt but respect the hold of the old religious organizations upon men's respect was still enormous so enormous that there seemed to be a quality of irreverence in applying religion to the developments of every day this strange suspension of religion lasted over into the beginnings of the new age it was the clear vision of marcus karenin much more than any other contemporary influence which brought it back into the texture of human life he saw religion without hallucinations without superstitious reverence as a common thing as necessary as food and air as land and energy to the life of man and the well-being of the republic he saw that indeed it had already percolated away from the temples and hierarchies and symbols in which men had sought to imprison it that it was already at work anonymously and obscurely in the universal acceptance of the greater state he gave it clearer expression rephrased it to the lights and perspectives of the new dawn but if we return to our novels for our evidence of the spirit of the times it becomes evident as one reads them in their chronological order so far as that is now ascertainable that as one comes to the latter nineteenth and the earlier twentieth century the writers are much more acutely aware of secular change than their predecessors were the earlier novelists tried to show life as it is the latter showed life as it changes more and more of their characters are engaged in adaptation to the change or suffering from the effects of the world changes and as we come up to the time of the last wars this newer conception of the everyday life as a reaction to an accelerated development is continually more manifest barnett's book which has served us so well is frankly a picture of the world coming about like a ship that sails into the wind our later novelists give a vast gallery of individual conflicts in which old habits and customs limited ideas ungenerous temperaments and innate obsessions are pitted against this great opening out of life that has happened to us they tell us of the feelings of old people who have been wrenched away from familiar surroundings and how they have had to make peace with uncomfortable comforts and conveniences that are still strange to them they give us the discord between the opening egotisms of youths and the ill-defined limitations of a changing social life they tell of the universal struggle of jealousy to capture and cripple our souls of romantic failures and tragical misconceptions of the trend of the world of the spirit of adventure and the urgency of curiosity and how these serve the universal drift and all their stories lead in the end either to happiness missed or happiness won to disaster or salvation the clearer their vision and the subtler their art 
the more certainly do these novels tell of the possibility of salvation for all the world for any road in life leads to religion for those upon it who will follow it far enough it would have seemed a strange thing to the men of the former time that it should be an open question as it is today whether the world is wholly christian or not christian at all but assuredly we have the spirit and as surely have we left many temporary forms behind christianity was the first expression of world religion the first complete repudiation of tribalism and war and disputation that it fell presently into the ways of more ancient rituals cannot alter that the common sense of mankind has toiled through two thousand years of chastening experience to find at last how sound a meaning attaches to the familiar phrases of the christian faith the scientific thinker as he widens out to the moral problems of the collective life comes inevitably upon the words of christ and as inevitably does the christian as his thoughts grow clearer arrive at the world republic as for the claims of the sex as for the use of a name and successions we live in a time that has shaken itself free from such claims and consistencies chapter five the last days of marcus karenin section one the second operation upon marcus karenin was performed at the new station for surgical work at parin high in the himalayas above the sutledge gorge where it comes down out of tibet it is a place of such wildness and beauty as no other scenery in the world affords the granite terrace which runs round the four sides of the low block of laboratories looks out in every direction upon mountains far below in the hidden depths of the shadowy blue cleft the river pours down in its tumultuous passage to the swarming plains of india no sound of its roaring haste comes up to those serenities beyond that blue gulf in which whole forests of giant deodars seem no more than small patches of moss rise vast precipices of many-coloured rock fretted above lined by snowfalls and jagged into pinnacles these are the northward wall of a towering wilderness of ice and snow which clambers southward higher and wider and vaster to the culminating summits of our globe to Douglagheri and everest here are cliffs of which no other land can show the like and deep chasms in which mount blank might be plunged and hidden here are ice-fields as big as inland seas on which the tumbled boulders lie so thickly that strange little flowers can bloom among them under the untempered sunshine to the northward and blocking out any vision of the uplands of tibet rises that citadel of porcelain that gothic pile the leoporgule walls towers and peaks a clear twelve thousand feet of veined and splintered rock above the river and beyond it and eastward and westward rise peaks behind peaks against 
the dark blue himalayan sky far away below to the south the clouds of the indian rains pile up abruptly and are stayed by an invisible hand hither it was that with a dream-like swiftness karenin flew high over the irrigations of rajputana and the towers and copulas of the ultimate delhi and the little group of buildings albeit the southward wall dropped nearly five hundred feet seemed to him as he soared down to it like a toy lost among these mountain wildernesses no road came up to this place it was reached only by flight his pilot descended to the great courtyard and karenin assisted by his secretary clambered down through the wing fabric and made his way to the officials who came out to receive him in this place beyond infections and noise and any distractions surgery had made for itself a house of research and a healing fastness the building itself would have seemed very wonderful to eyes accustomed to the flimsy architecture of an age when power was precious it was made of granite already a little roughened on the outside by frost but polished within and of a tremendous solidity and in a honeycomb of subtly lit apartments were the spotless research benches the operating tables the instruments of brass and fine glass and platinum and gold men and women came from all parts of the world for study or experimental research they wore a common uniform of white and ate at long tables together but the patients lived in an upper part of the buildings and were cared for by nurses and skilled attendants the first man to greet karenin was siana the scientific director of the institution beside him was rachel borkin the chief organizer you are tired she asked and old karenin shook his head cramped he said i have wanted to visit such a place as this he spoke as if he had no other business with them there was a little pause how many scientific people have you got here now he asked just three hundred and ninety-two said rachel borkin and the patients and attendants and so on two thousand and thirty i shall be a patient said karenin i shall have to be a patient but i should like to see things first presently i will be a patient you will come to my rooms suggested siana and then i must talk to this doctor of yours said karenin but i would like to see a bit of this place and talk to some of your people before it comes to that he winced and moved forward i have left most of my work in order he said you have been working hard up to now asked rachel borkin yes and now i have nothing more to do and it seems strange and it's a bother this illness and having to come down to oneself this doorway and the row of windows is well done the grey granite and just the line of gold and then those mountains beyond through that arch it's very well done section two 
Corinnan lay on the bed with a soft white rug about him, and Fowler, who was to be his surgeon, sat on the edge of the bed and talked to him. An assistant was seated quietly in the shadow behind the bed. The examination had been made, and Karenin knew what was before him. He was tired but serene. "'So I shall die,' he said, "'unless you operate.' Fowler assented. "'And then,' said Karenin, smiling, "'probably I shall die.' "'Not certainly.' Even if I do not die, shall I be able to work? There is just a chance. So firstly, I shall probably die. And if I do not, then perhaps I shall be a useless invalid. I think if you live, you may be able to go on, as you do now. Well, then, I suppose I must take the risk of it. Yet, couldn't you, Fowler, couldn't you drug me and patch me instead of all this? vivisection a few days of drugged and active life and then the end fowler thought we are not sure enough yet to do things like that he said but a day is coming when you will be certain fowler nodded you make me feel as though i was the last of deformity deformity is uncertainty inaccuracy my body works doubtfully it is not even sure that it will die or live. I suppose the time is not far off when such bodies as mine will no longer be born into the world. You see, said Fowler, after a little pause, it is necessary that spirits such as yours should be born into the world. I suppose, said Karenin, that my spirit has had its use. But if you think that is because my body is as it is, I think you are mistaken. There is no peculiar virtue in defect. I have always chafed against all this. If I could have moved more freely and lived a larger life in health, I could have done more. But some day, perhaps you will be able to put a body that is wrong altogether right again. Your science is only beginning. It's a subtler thing than physics and chemistry, and it takes longer to produce its miracles. And meanwhile, a few more of us must die in patience. Fine work is being done, and much of it, said Fowler. I can say as much because I have nothing to do with it. I can understand a lesson, appreciate the discoveries of abler men, and use my hands. But those others, Pigot, Masterton, Lai, and the others. They are clearing the ground fast for the knowledge to come. Have you had time to follow their work? Karenin shook his head. But I can imagine the scope of it, he said. We have so many men working now, said Fowler. I suppose at present there must be at least a thousand thinking hard, observing, experimenting, for one who did so in 1900 not counting those who keep the records, not counting those. Of course, the present indexing of research is in itself a very big work, and it is only now that we are getting it properly done. But already we are feeling the benefit of that, since it ceased to be a paid employment and became a devotion we have had 
only those people who obey the call of an aptitude at work upon these things here i must show you it to-day because it will interest you we have our copy of the encyclopedic index every week sheets are taken out and replaced by fresh sheets with new results that are brought to us by the aeroplanes of the research department it is an index of knowledge that grows continually an index that becomes continually truer there was never anything like it before when i came into the education committee said karenin that index of human knowledge seemed an impossible thing research had produced a chaotic mountain of results in a hundred languages and a thousand different types of publication he smiled at his memories how he groaned at the job already the ordering of that chaos is nearly done you shall see i have been so busy with my own work yes i shall be glad to see the patient regarded the surgeon for a time with interested eyes you work here always he asked abruptly no said fowler but mostly you work here i have worked about seven years out of the past ten at times i go away down there one has to at least i have to there is a sort of grayness comes over all this one feels hungry for life real personal passionate life love-making eating and drinking for the fun of the thing jostling crowds having adventures laughter above all laughter yes said karenin understandingly and then one day suddenly one thinks of these high mountains again that is how i would have lived if it had not been for my defects said karenin nobody knows but those who have borne it the exasperation of abnormality it will be good when you have nobody alive whose body cannot live the wholesome everyday life whose spirit cannot come up into these high places as it wills we shall manage that soon said fowler for endless generations man has struggled upward against the indignities of his body and the indignities of his soul pains incapacities vile fears black moods despairs how well i've known them they have taken more time than all your holidays it is true is it not that every man is something of a cripple and something of a beast i've dipped a little deeper than most that's all it's only now when he has fully learnt the truth of that that he can take hold of himself to be neither beast nor cripple now that he overcomes his servitude to his body he can for the first time think of living the full life of his body before another generation dies you'll have the thing in hand you'll do as you please with the old adam and all the vestiges from the brutes and reptiles that lurk in his body and spirit isn't that so you put it boldly said fowler karenin laughed cheerfully at his caution when asked karenin suddenly when will you operate the day after tomorrow," said fowler for a day i want you to drink and eat as i shall prescribe and you may think and talk as you please 
I should like to see this place. You shall go through it this afternoon. I will have two men carry you in a litter, and tomorrow you shall lie out upon the terrace. Our mountains here are the most beautiful in the world. Section 3 The next morning Karenin got up early and watched the sun rise over the mountains and breakfasted lightly, and then young Gardner, his secretary, came to consult him upon the spending of his day. Would he care to see people? Or was this gnawing pain within him too much to permit him to do that? I'd like to talk, said Karenin. There must be all sorts of lively-minded people here. Let them come and gossip with me. It will distract me. And I can't tell you how interesting it makes everything that is going on to have seen the dawn of one's own last day. Your last day? Fowler will kill me. But he thinks not. Fowler will kill me. If he does not, he will not leave very much of me, so that this is my last day anyhow. The days afterwards, if they come at all to me, will be refuse. I know. Gardner was about to speak when Karenin went on again. I hope he kills me, Gardner. Don't be old-fashioned. The thing I'm most afraid of is that last rag of life. I may just go on. A scarred salvage of suffering stuff. And then, all the things I have hidden and kept down or discounted or set right afterwards will get the better of me. I shall be peevish. I may lose my grip upon my own egotism. It's never been a very firm grip. No, no, Gardner, don't say that. You know better. You've had glimpses of it. Suppose I came through on the other side of this affair, belittled, vain, and spiteful, using the prestige I have got among men by my good work in the past just to serve some small invalid purpose. He was silent for a time, watching the mists among the distant precipices change to clouds of light, and drift and dissolve before the searching rays of the sunrise. Yes, he said at last, I'm afraid of these anesthetics and these fag ends of life. It's life we are all afraid of. Death, nobody minds just death. Fowler is clever but some day surgery will know its duty better and not be so anxious just to save something, provided only that it quivers. I've tried to hold my end up properly and do my work. After Fowler has done with me, I am certain I shall be unfit for work. And what else is there for me? I know I shall not be fit for work. I do not see why life should be judged by its last trailing thread of vitality. I know it for the splendid thing it is. I, who have been a diseased creature from the beginning, I know it well enough not to confuse it with its husks. Remember that, Gardner. If presently my heart fails me and I despair, and if I go through a little phase of pain and ingratitude and dark forgetfulness, before the end. Don't believe what I may say at the last. If the fabric is good enough, the selvage doesn't matter. It can't matter. So long as you are alive, you are just the moment. Perhaps, 
but when you are dead then you are all your life from the first moment to the last section four presently in accordance with his wish people came to talk to him and he could forget himself again rachel borkin sat for a long time with him and talked chiefly of women in the world and with her was a girl named edith hayden who was already very well known as a cytologist and several of the younger men who were working in the place and a patient named con a poet and edwards a designer of plays and shows spent some time with him the talk wandered from point to point and came back upon itself and became now earnest and now trivial as the chance suggestions determined but soon afterwards gardner wrote down notes of things he remembered and it is possible to put together again the outlook of karenin upon the world and how he thought and felt about many of the principal things in life our age he said has been so far an age of scene shifting we have been preparing a stage clearing away the setting of a drama that was played out and growing tiresome if i could but sit out the first few scenes of the new spectacle how encumbered the world has become it was ailing as i am ailing with the growth of unmeaning things it was entangled feverish confused it was in sore need of release and i suppose that nothing less than the violence of those bombs could have released it and made it a healthy world again i suppose they were necessary just as everything turns to evil in a fevered body so everything seemed turning to evil in those last years of the old time everywhere there were obsolete organizations seizing upon all the new fine things that science was giving to the world nationalities all sorts of political bodies the churches and sects proprietorship seizing upon those treat powers and limitless possibilities and turning them to evil uses and they would not suffer open speech they would not permit of education they would let no one be educated to the needs of the new time you who are younger cannot imagine the mixture of desperate hope and protesting despair in which we who could believe in the possibilities of science lived in those years before atomic energy came it was not only that the mass of people would not attend would not understand but that those who did understand lacked the power of real belief they said the things they saw the things and the things meant nothing to them i have been reading some old papers lately it is wonderful how our fathers bore themselves towards science they hated it they feared it they permitted a few scientific men to exist and work a pitiful handful don't find out anything about us they said to them don't inflict vision upon us spare our little ways of life from the fearful shaft of understanding but do tricks for us little limited tricks give us cheap lighting and cure us of certain disagreeable things cure us of cancer cure us of consumption 
cure our colds and relieve us after repletion we have changed all that gardener science is no longer our servant we know it for something greater than our little individual selves it is the awakening mind of the race and in a little while in a little while i wish indeed i could watch for that little while now that the curtain has risen while i lie here they are clearing up what is left of the bombs in london he said then they are going to repair the ruins and make it all as like as possible to its former condition before the bombs fell perhaps they will dig out the old house in st john's wood to which my father went after his expulsion from russia that london of my memory seems to me like a place in another world for you younger people it must seem like a place that could never have existed is there much left standing asked edith hayden square miles that are scarcely shaken in the south and northwest they say and most of the bridges and large areas of dock westminster which held most of the government offices suffered badly from the small bomb that destroyed the parliament there are very few traces of the old thoroughfare of whitehall or the government region thereabout but there are plentiful drawings to scale of its buildings and the great hole in the east of london scarcely matters that was a poor district and very like the north and the south it will be possible to reconstruct most of it it is wanted already it becomes difficult to recall the old time even for us who saw it it seems very distant to me said the girl it was an unwholesome world reflected karenin i seem to remember everybody about my childhood as if they were ill they were ill they were sick with confusion everybody was anxious about money and everybody was doing uncongenial things they ate a queer mixture of foods either too much or too little and at odd hours one sees how ill they were by their advertisements all this new region of london they are opening up now is plastered with advertisements of pills everybody must have been taking pills in one of the hotel rooms in the strand they have found the luggage of a lady covered up by falling rubble and unburnt and she was equipped with nine different sorts of pill and tabloid the pill-carrying age followed the weapon-carrying age they are equally strange to us people's skins must have been in a vile state very few people were properly washed they carried the filth of months on their clothes all the clothes they wore were old clothes our way of pulping our clothes again after a week or so of wear would have seemed fantastic to them their clothing hardly bears thinking about and the congestion of them everybody was jostling against everybody in those awful towns in an uproar people were run over and crushed by the hundred every year in london the cars and omnibuses alone killed or disabled twenty thousand people in paris it was worse people used to fall dead for want of air in the crowded ways the irritation of london 
internal and external, must have been maddening. It was a maddened world. It is like thinking of a sick child. One has the same effect of feverish urgencies and acute irrational disappointments. All history, he said, is a record of a childhood, and yet not exactly a childhood. There is something clean and keen about even a sick child, and something touching. But so much of the old times makes one angry. So much they did seems grossly stupid, obstinately, outrageously stupid, which is the very opposite to being fresh and young. I was reading only the other day about Bismarck, that hero of 19th century politics, that sequel to Napoleon, that god of blood and iron. And he was just a beery, obstinate, dull man. Indeed, that is what he was, the commonest, coarsest man who ever became great. I looked at his portraits, a heavy, almost froggish face, with projecting eyes and a thick moustache to hide a poor mouth. He aimed at nothing but Germany. Germany emphasized, indurated, enlarged. Germany and his class in Germany. Beyond that he had no ideas. He was inaccessible to ideas. His mind never rose for a recorded instant above a bumpkin's elaborate cunning and he was the most influential man in the world, in the whole world. No man ever left so deep a mark on it, because everywhere there were gross men to resonate to the heavy notes he emitted. He trampled on ten thousand lovely things, and a kind of malice in these louts made it pleasant to them to see him trample. No, he was no child. The dull, national aggressiveness he stood for no childishness childhood is promise he was survival all europe offered its children to him it sacrificed education art happiness and all its hopes of future welfare to follow the clatter of his saber the monstrous worship of that old fool's blood and iron passed all round the earth until the atomic bombs burnt our way to freedom again one thinks of him now as one thinks of the megatherium, said one of the young men. From first to last mankind made three million big guns and a hundred thousand complicated great ships for no other purpose but war. Were there no sane men in those days, asked the young man, to stand against that idolatry? In a state of despair, said Edith Hayden, he is so far off, and there are men alive still who were alive when Bismarck died, said the young man. End of chapter 4, section 12, and chapter 5, sections 1 to 4.